what we're looking at today is really cool because it's Jesus's last sermon. It's the last sermon of his public ministry. And so uh, you might realize that, oh, this is his last sermon. Is that, uh, does that mean John is over? Uh, no, because Jesus did way more than just preach. <laughs> uh, because love is way more than just talk. It's action. And you might notice in your Bibles that the majority the majority of uh, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the good news according to those, those men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are mostly about the last week of his life, what he did, what he accomplished, and not just what he said. But it's uh, a powerful moment to get here and to recognize, okay, what is the last thing that Jesus taught publicly? Now, here at this church, we're really, really serious about what is the last thing that Jesus declared to his disciples post-resurrection. And so this was the Great Commission. There's a version of the Great Commission in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even the book of Acts. And uh, in all of these things, he says the exact same thing. He says, as a father has sent me, so am I sending you. That's in, that's in John. And Matthew, probably the most famous version of the Great Commission, he goes, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and I'm with you even to the end of the age. Right before that, he says, all authority is mine. So don't sweat it. I gave you a job. Now go do it. And so we're really serious about that. And so I, I want to call your attention to take this just as serious. To take this just as serious because this was the last, as I said, the very last public sermon of Jesus' day. What we have after this, whenever Jesus is speaking, he's speaking directly to his disciples. You say, well, Cody, if you have a red letter Bible, you might be saying, what are you talking about? This isn't his last sermon. I say a whole lot of red letters right after this. No, but this is his last sermon. This is his last public sermon. Everything else is kind of him dialoguing with his, with his disciples. And so let's dig in. Let's dig in so that we can try to understand the really, really important thing that he is teaching uh, the masses before he goes to the cross, before he goes to the cross. And um, let me tell you, let me tell you, this isn't an easy one. This isn't an easy thing uh, to digest. The, uh, one of the things that Jesus says, let me just read it to you so to kind of set up everything that's going on. He says in verse uh, 38, he says, the Lord, um, uh, the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. And he has hardened their hearts. The Lord has done these things. And so, okay, uh, Jesus, this is your last uh, sermon to the public, and this is what you say. And then afterwards, it says that he kind of, uh, right before this, rather, it says that he removed himself. He removed him, himself from, um, from them, and this was the last time that he spoke. How interesting. How interesting. And so I want to set up a principle here for us as a body of believers in this room. Uh, and um, uh, as the principle goes like this, I think a lot of times whenever we hear hard teachings from the Bible, we want to apologize to the world for some of the hard teachings of the Bible. And what is that, what is that saying about our nature and character? I think one, I think it reveals, and, and I'm, I'm preaching primarily to myself because I've done this over and over and over again, and it grieves me how much I've grieved the Lord in this. 
But I think, I think a lot of times whenever we try to uh, make excuses for some of the hard teachings of the Bible, it's because we want to present ourselves as superior or maybe even more empathetic and more gracious or more loving than the God of the Bible, right? I know I've done this. I know I've done this. It's like, oh, this is a hard saying. Maybe, maybe you don't even have to deal with it right now. And I'm like, yeah, I get it's hard. It's hard for me too. Like we, we do this, but this isn't showing mature faith. This is showing immature faith. And, and I, I pray that the Lord ma- matures me and you as we look, in, look at hard passages of the Bible and try to understand them in their proper context of what they're actually saying and communicating to us. Because it doesn't do the world any do- good. It doesn't do us any good. If we try to water down the teachings of our Lord and the teachings of the Bible, to try to make them palatable to the world, that is, um, that Jesus uh, doesn't have a whole lot of nice things to say. In fact, in this very section, he says the world is cast in darkness unless they have me. The world is just surrounded by complete and utter and total darkness unless you got me. And so may, may we not, let me set this up by saying may we not, May we not try to try to convince the world that we are more empathetic, kind, compassionate than God. We're not. You and I are not. So whenever we try to communicate the word of God, we should not apologize for what it's actually saying. We should speak the truth lovingly. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15 says. That's what we're to call called to do. We are to be loving while we're speaking the truth, while we're speaking the truth, all right? And so this is, this is a hard thing. It's a hard thing, but I think it's important for us to recognize. And if we're trying to be more empathetic or more compassionate than, than the Lord whenever we're trying to understand hard passages of the Bible, guess what? Guess what? Does that mean that we're really walking clearly into the light, or are we walking in the darkness that this passage is warning us about? May we be people of the light because we're following the God who, is, who describes himself as light. And so there's three things that we're going to see here. Three things that are, that are tough, but they're amazing because they come from our God who is loving, perfect, good, and beautiful. And the, the first thing that he uh, reveals to us here is, uh, let me just give you the three so that I can kind of uh, stay focused on those three things. Number one is you need his power in order to believe in him. You need the power of God in order to believe in God. Number two, you need his light, uh, his light to get out of darkness. Yeah, we cannot discover our own way. Uh, number three, the only hope that you and I have is the judgment of God. <laughs> All right, three very unpopular things right there. <laughs> you know, uh, we need his power in order to believe in him. Uh, the, uh, we need his light or we're constantly in darkness and we, uh, our only hope is his judgment. Our only hope in this life is his judgment. So let's, uh, let's kind of jump in uh, because this presents a dilemma for us, right? So, so let's talk about the first one. We need his power to believe. This is what Jesus is teaching. In verse 40, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. All right? This is, what God, this is what God is saying, and this is what Jesus, or rather John, is trying to communicate to the people. He's saying, look, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened 
their hearts so that whenever Jesus speaks, they would not believe. They would not believe. You say, Cody, well, doesn't this mess with our free will? That's the first, that's the pr- first problem here, but let me present it to you this way. Remember a couple, uh, I don't even know, uh, church planting, I, I have no concept of time anymore. I don't know how long we've been doing this. I just feel like we're... We're here, and the next, like, a couple of hours pass, and then we're here again. That's kind of how I deal with time. I don't know about y'all. Uh, I feel like COVID-19 is kind of messed up time for all of us as well. But um, we did a series through the book of Exodus, and we had to cover this in the book of Exodus. Because in Exodus chapter 7 through 9, it talks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Often, it talks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You can go through it, Exodus chapter 9 through Exodus chapter 10. All the way through there, it talks about Pharaoh's hardening. But this is what's interesting. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then a couple of verses later, it would say, and God hardened his heart. Well, which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his heart, or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. Well, which which is it? Because look at our passage here in verse 43. It says that God, or or excuse me, in verse 40, it says that God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And then in verse 43, why did they not believe? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's talking about what they did. Which is it? Did God harden their heart or do they love the glory that comes from man more than they love the glory that comes from God? Which is it? And the answer is, according to the Bible, yes. Both. The answer is totally, right? Totally. And I know this presents us a very, very hard concept, but this is one of those things that I'm asking you, again, don't just, don't just say, well, you know, God's not really a good communicator uh, whenever it comes to his foreknowledge and his plan, his definite plan. God doesn't communicate that very clearly. So let's just all kind of smile and be like, okay, God, uh, you kind of got confused with Pharaoh. You didn't know if he was hardening his heart or you didn't know if you were hardening his heart. And so let's just all be confused. No, no, no. This is teaching us something. The word of God is teaching us something about the nature of reality that we as Christians need to embrace. We need to embrace the Bible's view and not the American view. Because here's the thing. You and I are struggling with this, right? I've struggled with this my entire life. I've struggled because you and I grow up in a culture that from the time that we were born, we were taught that we have absolute, this might be be part of our American um, upbringing, but we have absolute and total free will. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Whatever, whatever you want, you can, you can achieve by hard work, ingenuity, and doing the, doing the right thing according to the Bible or, or, or whatever worldview. Be really, be really, really sincere. Be really, really serious. And you have total, total free will. And so that's the, that's the culture that we're brought up in. And so that we, whenever we read stuff in the Bible that talks about God's definite plan or God's predestination or God's sovereignty or God's control over things, we filter it through the lens, listen to me, we filter it through the lens of our American culture of, well, that can't trump my identity of be, being able to pull up myself by my bootstraps because that's ultimate. The Bible is secondary. And we, as Christians, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind conformed into the image of Christ. We are to think biblically, not American. Amen? We're to think biblically, not, not according to our, our culture. So let's try to unpack this because this is what's interesting right here um, in, in this passage is we have this God hardened their heart, but they also didn't believe because they de- desired glory. 
So how do we reconcile this within our heart, mind, hands, worship of God? Well, let me point you, let me point you to Acts 2.23. It's the first sermon that was ever preached by uh, the Apostle Peter. And in this verse, Acts 2, I'm I'm just going to read it to you. It says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, which is it? Uh, Did lawless men pick him up, bound him, strike him, um, um, uh, crucify him on the cross, or did the definite plan and foreknowledge of God put him on the cross? And the answer is totally. The answer is yes. The answer is both. And so this makes us really squirm. This makes us uncomfortable. And that's okay. And so let's, 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 unpack, the, let's unpack the struggle that we're dealing with. Which is it? What is it? Um, is, it, uh, is, it is this a zero-sum game here? in trying to understand where does God's responsibility start and end, and where does human responsibility start and end? Is it 50-50? Is it, is it 75-20? Is it 80-20? Is it 99.99999 or .00001? Which is it? Which is it? Well, let me present a situation. Uh, a situation from a pastor that... <laughs> I think has explained this better than anyone that I have uh, ever heard. He gives the, um, he gives a uh, kind of a picture of uh, this Shakespearean uh, quote, which comes from the book, uh, from the play Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Who is responsible for that line according to, uh, uh, according to uh, the play? Is it the actor? Who's responsible for to be or not to be? That is the question. Is it the actor or is it Shakespeare? Well, it's not 80-20. It's not 75. It's not 50-50. What is it? It's 100-100. It's 100-100. The the actor has 100% responsibility for delivering the line as written by, by the author. But in one sense, it's completely the actor's responsibility to deliver the line. In the other sense, Shakespeare absolutely wrote that line. So whose line is it? It's both. It's, it's both. And you say, Cody, that breaks down. That breaks down. Well, tell me how it breaks down. Well, Cody, it breaks down because the actor is a kind of a two-dimensional figure, right? The actor just has to learn the play and perform the play. I'm not like that. I have a conscience, I have a will, I I have desires, I act on those desires, and I'm responsible for the things that I do. Uh, Your analogy breaks down, your analogy breaks down, and I totally agree with you, it does break down. You are more valuable than the actor Hamlet in the play. However, that's not the way that it ultimately breaks down. It breaks down because God is infinitely more valuable than Shakespeare. God is so powerful that he can use us as free agents, free agents with a will, with with desires, with purposes, with responsibility, with responsibility, and he can write in his play, whenever he said, let there be light, all those those things that we do in day-to-day life by our own volition, by our own will, and he says, that was my ultimate definite plan. You say, Cody, how does that work? He's God. He's on a different playing field than you and I. 
He is God. What's the analogy that the Bible uses as the distance between us and God? Is it the ant in us? Are we the ant and God is God? Or God is, God is us in this analogy? No, what, what analogy is used? In Jeremiah 18, in Romans chapter 9, it uses this analogy. For you are clay, and God is a potter. See, an ant probably has a brain. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's moving. It's doing. It's, 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 it's functioning in, in an amazing way. Like, each one, all of them have different things. I'm sure someone can be like, yes, Cody, ants have brains. Like, I'll explain it to me later. I, I don't actually necessarily care. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That's not the analogy that God uses in the Word. The analogy that God uses as the distance between us and Him is potter and dirt. And so, whenever we're trying to understand this deep, deep, deeply difficult thing about where do the, and where's the beginning of God's sovereignty and where is the beginning of God's or, or man's responsibility, we have to recognize the vast difference between us and God. And God is so great, according to the Bible, he writes into the ultimate reality of what we're experiencing right now with our free agency to go right and to go left. Um, to, to choose this way or to choose that way as his ultimate plan. Now you think about that for 30 seconds. I should take a moment of silence and we think about that and we'll probably all, our brains will explode. But that's what the Bible teaches. God hardens people's hearts and then he ultimately holds them completely responsible. These are the two things that are intention. You say, that doesn't sound like I'm free. You are free. You are free. Charles Spurgeon, whenever he was asked about this question, how do, how do, you, how do you wrestle with uh, the dichotomy between man's responsibility and God's definite plan? He goes, I don't. I don't have to reconcile friends. These are friends. You, you and I are free agents, free agents um, going right and going left. And whenever Christ saves us, he saves us for freedom. Now, we read that as Americans, we read, Christ saved us for freedom so that we can have free will. You will not see the word free will anywhere in the Bible. You will see a free will offering in the Old Testament, but you won't see this, this American understanding of free will anywhere in the Bible. You will see human responsibility for the sin that they have committed. But whenever the Bible talks about gaining our freedom, what he says, he's talking about our moral freedom. To where we get moral freedom whenever we believe in the Lord Jesus and are saved to where our hearts for the first time ever says I can love the things that God loves and I can do the things that God does see before we were in Christ before our hearts were re, uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit before he resided with us the Bible teaches this very plainly yes you had freedom but you could not serve and love God on your own you needed the power of God you needed the power of God to transform you and bring your dead heart and make it alive. See, the analogy in the Bible is not you are drowning in the ocean and you need a life raft to come and save you. The, the analogy of the Bible before we are found in Christ is this. You are dead at the bottom of the ocean and dead people don't need a life raft. Dead people need resurrection. And that is what we, that's what we gain. And so whenever we, when Christ resurrects us, for whenever we die with Christ and are resurrected uh, with him through baptism, what, what happens there, what happens there is we are uh, made alive 
and given our ultimate freedom, our ultimate freedom to love the things that God loves, to choose the things that God, God chooses, and to hate the things that God hates. This is what the, the Bible teaches about this particularly hard thing. You say, Cody, I, I still don't get it. I, I get that. I get that. This is hard, hard to work in. But I want you, I want you to begin to question your hesitations. Why, why are you hesitant to, to hold these two things in tension and to say, yes, I believe? Uh, why, why are you hesitant to believe this? Is because you, you really like your idea of being an ultimate free agent? Does that, listen, I want to say this humbly, but does that not mean that if we are ultimately free, then we're just a little bit smarter than everyone else? Because we found the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through my moral intellect that figured out that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. Does that not make us superior? And does that make us agents of grace? Is that not works righteousness? Whenever we dec decree, uh, the world is going to hell over here, but I found the way to Jesus. Does that make you, you want the antidote to humility? To live a life filled with humility, embrace this doctrine. You want to be a humble person? You want to be a, a person filled with gratitude and thanksgiving in your life? Embrace this doctrine. Hold the tension that God is ultimately in control. God is ultimately in control, and yet he calls you to the freedom of loving him and serving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So here's, here's a, a question, right? The question is this. Uh, Christian, can you completely ruin and derail your life? Here's the answer. Yes, but ultimately, no. You're in the hands of the loving Father. And to where we like to judge, we judge our circumstances moment by moment by moment. But God, in His grace, is long suffering and patient. And what, and our Lord says, who cares? Who cares if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? And in Christ, who cares if you lose the whole world, but have Christ? Have Christ. He's the thing. We, heaven has nothing else to give us. We have Christ and Christ alone. And so you want to have ultimate peace, humility, thankfulness? You want to be a person that everyone wants to be around? Embrace this doctrine that I'm a recipient of grace and God is ultimately in charge of my life and he's moving and I get to, I get to love him. I get to serve him. I get to pursue him with all that I am knowing that I, my attitude and my, my demeanor in, in, in my life is not dependent upon my circumstances because I have the King of kings and the Lord of lords as my friend who's in charge of ultimately everything and writing a story even through me, a rebellious sinner. And so this will give you a life of what Tim Keller calls peaceful initiative. You'll be able to pursue the things that you want to pursue in this life with a peaceful initiative. See, there's a pessimism. There's a pessimism in our culture right now. Is there not? We're pessimistic about everything. We're pessimistic about, about politics. Um, we're pessimistic about uh, economics. We're pessimistic about, you know, overall culture or what, the direction of, that the culture is going. We're, pes we're pessimistic about all, all of these things. And what uh, I've recognized through this pessimism, really post-World War I, in American culture is we have coupled this with some theology. It's like how the world's uh, getting really, really bad right now. 
It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and so our hearts aren't filled with gratitude. We're just kind of living life as if uh, the clock is running out. And what we need to do is just hunker down and uh, hunker down and uh, potentially, you know, buy some bread for the apocalypse just in case, you know, the rapture doesn't happen and stuff like, <laughs> like, stuff like that. Like there's this overall pessimism going on within, within our culture to where Christians do not act like they're ever going to see their great-grandchildren. Have you noticed this? Shouldn't we, if we embrace that God is ultimately in control and we can have peaceful initiative moving forward, you know what this means? It transforms everything. It transforms the way that you think about your kids' education. It transforms the way that you structure your week. It, it, transform, it transforms the way that you think of the church. The church is no longer something that you have to preferential, preferentially pick and choose and kind of see, like, I like this, don't like this, don't, I like that person, don't like that person. No, it, it makes you want to stop and build. It gives you an excitement in life to where you say, oh, God, God's on the throne and he's given me an agency to build this life for his glory. Do you process life that way or are you running out the clock? Uh, I think the antidote for all of this is embracing, embracing the idea that God has a definite plan for you and I and he calls us to freedom, to pursue him. Think about your great-grandchildren even this row right here, think about your great-grandchildren and build your life, build your life um, on, on those principles. What, what do I want them to know about me? How do, I, how do I want to live this life? And so uh, this will cause us to have peaceful initiative. It will cause us to have um, gratitude and thanksgiving and all that, all that we have. Um, and it will help us understand that we are saved by grace. We all know Ephesians 2, 10, or 2, um, 8, 9, and 10. If, if you're in this room, you probably know it. For you are saved by grace through faith. And John 6, 44 says, did I not choose you? Did I not choose you? Um, why are we embarrassed by the choosing of the Lord? Let us embrace this with joyful gratitude. Oh, God cho chose me. I, I don't know why. I'm sure we're all going to marvel at that. I don't know why, but he did. Now let's build and let's live our life in the freedom of the Lord to try to bring as many brothers and sisters home as we possibly can. All right? This will help you understand the grace of God, that God is always the God that initiates. He didn't choose you because he looked in the corridors of the future and knew that you were going to choose him. No, before the foundation of the world was laid, he said, mine, I'm going after her with all that I am. If they string me up on the cross, if they kill me, it doesn't matter. I'm going after her. I'm going after him. This is our God. He chose you. Rejoice. Rejoice. This is not a doctrine that we should be embarrassed about. It's a, it's a doctrine that we should love and cherish. All right? Uh, you want me to keep going? I could keep going, <laughs> I could keep going on this point, but let's, uh, let's move forward. You want poise? You want joy? Embrace this doctrine. You are responsible, and God is supremely holy, righteous, and good, and ultimately in charge. All right? So let's, what else do we see in this passage? In this passage, we see that unless we belong to God, we're in the darkness of this world. And so we see this in verse 46. I've come into the world as light, Jesus says, so that who, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now may not remain in darkness. Now, the Bible is not flattering 
to those that have not received Christ. It talks, uh, talks about just being dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, this, this, word, this word dead means dead, all right? In the Greek, uh, the word for dead in our trespasses and sins means like we are ultimately dead, which means we cannot come alive. And this is part of the darkness, the darkness that God is, uh, God is speaking about. And so I see, I see a lot of times uh, in, in our culture, in our culture, um, some dark remnants that the enemy likes to sow, even within the church, even within the church. And these are some, these are some of them. Um, there was a, uh, there's an article that I read uh, produced by Barnum that talked about, um, talked about suicide, uh, failed suicide rates um, in teenagers. It was, a, it was a longitudinal study from the turn of the millennium until I think 2014 was the time of the uh, time of the study. And so they were trying to discover why, why uh, so many teenagers and what was the, the prevailing uh, reasons why t- teenagers were trying to commit suicide. And so these are failed attempts, and so these are personal interviews of those that have had failed attempts um, by God's grace. And um, the longitudinal study um, found this. Do you want to guess before I, before I share it? Most people think it's probably bullying. It's not allowing them to, to figure out their own identity or something like that. Something around um, that uh, involved, uh, you know, school or something like that. And what they found was absolutely uh, so interesting and, and devastating at the same time. It said that all the suicide attempts, um, they said they struggled because their parents didn't teach them right from wrong. That was the number one reason common denominator across the board. They didn't teach them very clearly what was right and what was wrong. It didn't matter the worldview. I'm not saying this is a biblical, I'm just saying that they did not say, hey, don't do this and live this way. Whenever children were left to themselves, all that was left was chaos and darkness. Chaos and darkness. And they said, life isn't worth it. Uh, See, we need, (laughs) we need the light. We need the light to be able to see where we're going. We need the light to be able to see what we need to do and how we need to operate, what is good and what is bad. And this is so, this is so evident even just within our culture, and that's ex- essentially what Jesus is saying right here. See, apart from me, everyone's just wandering around in the dark. And within our culture, this, our secular culture, um, or sometimes called modernism, um, a lot of people think that we're in a postmodern culture, but I would say this, uh, William Lane Craig talks about this extensively. He's a Christian apologist that says uh, postmodernism uh, is a worldview that doesn't actually, like will never hold water or could never hold a, a culture together. It will flame out in a second. What, what uh, he thinks the enemy is doing with the rise of postmodernism, sorry, this, I'm talking to some you nerds. <laughs> so, so I'll try to get back down on um, all of our levels here in a second. But uh, uh, he's saying that what the enemy is doing with the rise of postmodernism is this. It's a smokescreen for allowing the culture to live out to, to its fullest effects, the, the effects of modernism, which is basically we can figure out right and wrong without, ultimate, without the ultimate authority of God. 
That's what modernism is. And it, it, it really came about in Germany, late 19th century, go figure, as they kind of uh, began to, to rise. And so it came from those um, types of philosophers. It came into the, uh, America in 1920. Modernism is this idea of we can have this utopian structure without God, but we can still have a culture held together by certain democratic rights and um, rights and wrongs. And what uh, is someone that really helped uh, poke a hole in all this is actually, um, think about this, Martin Luther King Jr. During the civil rights era, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, whenever he would go on debates in public, he would constantly appeal to the moral law. He would constantly appeal to the moral law. And so uh, in Letters to a Birmingham Jail, I encourage you to read it. It's a good book. Um, it's Martin Luther King Jr. Um, responding to some uh, pastors from the South, predominantly white, saying, how can you encourage Christian brothers and sisters to break the law? It's the law. And he said something really powerful. He said, I think we agree, brothers, that an unjust law is not a law at all. Right? Like a law that does not meet the standard, does not meet the standard of God's law is not ultimately a law. It should not be a law. And so what modernism is, is the democratically elected sin that we codify into law. And so you can either have Christ ruling or you can have the mob ruling, but you cannot have both. And what the mob rule is, doesn't matter if we have the majority of people in our culture saying that we should all do this, um, we should abort babies, whatever it is, whatever the hot topic issue of the day is, uh, this is, this is okay. That is not okay. Because God has a standard. God has a rule. And if we, do not follow the, if we do not follow God's law, what is Jesus saying? He's saying everything is plunged into darkness. Because what's interesting about this is the only way that we can follow, the only way that we can follow the light is what I said earlier. Is if God makes us alive, God makes us alive by his power and by his grace. And so don't allow these little things to steep into your overall worldview. That, uh, that, there, that there ultimately isn't a good... I'm not saying don't be compassionate, don't be filled with um, grace to those that are outside the church. I'm saying let's go make disciples of them. But at the same time, we should not, we should not look back and say, you know what, they're ultimately um, doing the right thing. And if they have a, a, a worldview set in stone, who am I? to try to break that up. Who are we? The people of God to carry the light of God into the dark world. That's who we are, light bearers. We don't look at darkness and say, oh, there might be a little bit of light there. Jesus does not say that and neither should we. We go to people by his grace and we say, the, the, the glory of the Lord is what you're aiming for. Don't look for it in any other place. So, what you, again, not easy. But this is, this is what the Lord is teaching in his last sermon. So let me conclude with this. Last, last thing that we see here is, uh, is this. If there's no judgment day, there is no hope for the world. Uh, the hope for the world is ultimately the judgment, the judgment of God. The judgment of God. And so we see this in verse 47. Look what 40, verse 47 says of John chapter 12. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. 
Jesus, our Savior, he did not come the first time as a judge. You know what this means? He did not come with a sword or with a spear in his hand. He came to take the spear in his side. You see, what Jesus did for the, for the Christian is he took our judgment. He took your judgment day. He took it in your place. And so that's our message. That's what, we, that's what we proclaim to the world, that Jesus took our judgment day in our place. Does that give you hope? Does that give you security? Does it help you identify the great love that God has for you right here? Because this is what Jesus has done. He took our darkness. He took our darkness. The light of the world voluntarily took on darkness. Now, how does that even work? Because anytime we're in, in this room before, before set up, there might be a little light right over there. But it, before we turn on the lights, it is, complete, it is completely dark. But as soon as we turn on the lights, what happens? You know what? A little bit of darkness stays over there. No. The darkness flees instantly. It flees instantly. So what we see here is something insane, completely bonkers, that the light of the world voluntarily went into darkness. You see, this is the God that John, Gary read it earlier. The light came into the world. The, the, the word of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh. The light of the world entered into the world. He was the one that made everything, that everything is for him and by him and through him. He said in Genesis chapter 3, verse, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, he said this, and let there be light. And there was light. The light of the world voluntarily took on the darkness of this world. And he allowed it to encompass him. What was he doing? He was taking on your darkness. He was taking on your judgment day so that you and I can live freely. Why should we believe the, the hard teachings of God? Because we can receive the good news of the gospel. If you receive the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus took your judgment place for you, then you can receive any, any of the hard... We should not apologize for any of the hard sayings of, of the Bible. Because if we receive this, we should receive it all. And, and listen, I'm done. But if you, but if you're in this room, and you're like, man, this is, so, this is so hard. And Cody, why didn't you just skip it? Like, we could have skipped this. I would have never known. And we could have gone on to John chapter 13. I, I wouldn't have cared. But listen, listen. Jesus didn't skip it. The Holy Spirit didn't skip it. John didn't skip it. Why should we, as the people of God, Let's dig in. I'm not saying uh, action steps, go and repent for all your disdain for the sovereignty of God in your life. No, maybe, like, like maybe a little bit, but let's at least repent of our brazenness of this doctrine and say as a culture, like, yes, I'm free, but I'm free to build. I'm free to live for him, but also at the same time, I am his. And no, no one can snatch me out of his hand. And nothing, nothing can ultimately deter me for living life everlasting in the presence of the glory of God. Do you have that? Has he taken your judgment day? If so, let's rejoice together.